Hi, and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Annie Finstra, I am so excited to interview you for She's the Boss Chats. Thank you so much for agreeing to it. Oh, thank you for having me, Jules. I've been really looking forward to it. Well, let's get started with what you're doing now. Tell everybody what you're doing now and a little bit about why you're doing it because I know there's a massive backstory that's amazing. Well, um, so what I'm doing right at the moment is performing. I've just come from a play which is called Set Piece, which is this fantastic, uh, it's a festival show. It's part of the major festivals initiative. It's been funded um, by a lot of different parties. And it's a beautiful queer piece, actually. Um, so it's four women who spend um, spend a night in, um, a wild night in, and explore each other's psychology and politics and education. And it's l- very loosely based on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And um, it's a, a wonderful piece of theatre, but it's also a piece of cinema, as the actors are followed by cameras and then it's projected onto massive, massive screens through the space. Right, amazing. So it's um, nice to be performing again having had, a, you know, a, a long break. Yes, so but tell everybody else what else you do because so you're an actor, you're a keynote speaker, you're an author. Yes. Go on, I'm, I'm not going to feed it to you. Tell everyone no. all the full breadth of what you do. So what tomorrow. I what I have been doing more recently is um, writing writing a book called um, Radical Rock and Roll Resilience, and it's based on my life story. And um, as a result of that book, um, I've now started keynote speaking, and I have a, a couple of really great um, keynotes coming up in the, in the next couple of months. So it's great to be able to share share my story and share my learnings with a different kind of audience, you know, and and just to be able to connect with people on, in a totally different way about how to live a better life through trans, transformational thinking really is what it's about. Right, amazing. I'm just going to stop you there. Well, remember, it's 2.37. There is a crack crackle coming from your end. Is, it, is your microphone hitting your oh. – I don't know whether it's – Hitting, yeah. Hitting, uh, uh, let me um, just um, rearrange. It might be hitting the the little desk I've got it on. The zip. I thought it might be the zip. Oh, the zip. On your okay, I'll pull that down. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, let's see how that goes. A little bit. Okay, so that was at two thirty. I'll remember that. Okay. <clears throat> so. Let's go straight, Annie, into your backstory because it is extremely incredible. Um, Tell me about uh, growing up and what it was like and and what you were like as a little girl. Big families? Yes, I was in a very um, spirited, wildly spirited, creative, really creative family. Um, Some very big personalities in there and we lived in Canberra, so we were a little bit of an anathema in the Canberra milieu because, you know, I was surrounded by people who were choosing to be, um, you know... In pro- the government instead it, of yes, pub- public service and, and service industries. And, and I have the most wonderful friends in Canberra still. But my family was different, and I'm not exactly sure why, other than um, my father was from um, Germany and was brought up in Hitler Youth and had this wild temperament. Oh, my God, was he? Yes, he was. He he was marched off to Hitler Youth as a young boy, um, but he had this 
uh, and of course it really polluted his the, his way of thinking and and his his sense of power politics and it was it was really tough actually growing up in a house with with him but he was married Gosh, to I've never I've never actually heard anyone talk of the other side of it so mm-hmm. yeah extra so was he very traumatized I mean was he sort of quite damaged as a father or? yes Yes, he was very damaged as a person. I mean, he, he, you know, he, he was just such a young boy when all these incredible impressions were made on him. Yeah, what, four or five kind of things. Oh, well, he was in Hitler Youth at 15. So he grew right. up through through the whole of the rise of the Third Reich. Yeah, right. And then he was marched off to the Hitler Youth. And then when he came out of that, he was he he was chosen to be um, part of this Master Builder Association. Oh, the because, Aryan race, kind of whatever it was. Yeah, well, no, because he was such a talented carpenter. He was a master. Oh, he became okay, a, like master. He became <laughs> a master. Oh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I can see why you made that association. <laughs> no, no, he... Um, he was chosen as part of this Master Builders Association to come to Australia and came with a whole lot of Germans. So he arrived here when he was about 25. Um, but by then, of course, he was well and truly, I suppose, damaged and he's had, you know, polluted by what the Third Reich did to him and his friends was just really terrible. And as he grew the older, shame, I guess. yes, and there was a whole lot of shame about being German. Um, and of course, then yeah. he, he kind of tr- he buried that in alcohol and he buried it in. It was very much a party guy, really wild, wildly good looking, um, charismatic guy. But um, underneath it all, he was just really sad and really struggling. Um, yeah. But Anyway, he found a community in Australia and he found my mother. And my mother is um, is also quite <laughs> spirited from an Irish background. Oh, what a great combo. <laughs> so that was the, quite the combination. And, and there are lots of brothers and sisters. Yes, well, there's there's five of us and, and my father also has a, a, a daughter from another w- woman. So there's, there's he had six, there's five that we grew up together. And I have, there's two composers in the family and my sisters wow. and... Um, She's got a, a um, degree in art history, and um, and there's two actors, and um, we're all partnered with photographers and actors, and so it's it's a very creative, yeah, and it's a very creative family, and it's interesting because we, I grew up in a family of real working class. My mother was a nurse, and then she right. went on to be a secretary, and my father was a, a builder. So, you know. I don't know where all that came from, but there was a lot of a sort of energy in the house and we were never going to just join the public service, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what were you like at school? I mean, did did you kind of just be, were you gagging to get out or did you enjoy it? Yeah, I was really, I mean, I really wanted to get out, but I, was, I never took school very seriously because I was just so social and I had a fantastic group of friends and, um, and I, you know, I loved going out and I was very sporty, so I had lots of different groups that I was always competing in swimming or basketball and doing lots of different sporty things with great friends and and I had a really wonderful time in Canberra um and I and I still love it so much because it was it's so spacious and free and you know you can ride your bike everywhere there was no traffic it was just a really beautiful place to to be and I still feel that when I go back it's just gorgeous it's a really gorgeous place i have to say i kind of discovered it i remember going up there for a um i think it was a a a, something at the national gallery anyway when i was about 18 and i just was completely underwhelmed by it and thought oh my god how could anyone live here and then about five years ago started doing some business stuff there and going there and i was like 
I could live here in a heartbeat. This is great. Isn't it interesting? When I go back now, I'm like, why did I leave here? And then I have to remind myself of why I left there. <laughs> but it's Okay, so what did you do? So, okay, uh, so you grew up there. Yes. You, you finished school. What do you do next? Oh, so I came to Sydney and I, I studied acting part-time while I worked. And I worked so right. that I could get the assistance from the government so that I could go to uni and study performing arts. Um, I didn't know where I would do that. I ended up doing a degree of performing arts at at, uh, University of Western Sydney where I found my tribe and I knew I was at at home. Uh, I remember standing in this funny little tin shed back when before it was properly funded and it's not there anymore that acting school actually right but I remember standing in a group of about 50 other people thinking they think just like me and and I'm not that weird and other people want to be actors too and I really loved those those years there but um prior to prior to getting to to acting school um I had this profound um experience as a 16 year old when I was in my I was in my doing my high school certificate right um, and I was at home one night and um, my sister came home and, and asked me, did I want to go into Civic, into town in Canberra, to go and see these boys? And, of course, you know, I was doing my high school student and it was a school night and there were boys waiting, so it made perfect sense to me that I... Like, yeah. <laughs> perfect sense. So off we go, we jump into her little funny Datsun 180B. And it was raining and and it was really dark and and we were chatting and laughing. We were super excited. We were being really naughty. And a dog ran out from the side of the road and ran into the car. And and the car spun and and slammed itself into a tree. And I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. Um, and there were no airbags, of course. So I broke the dashboard with with my face, and um, and I broke everything. Oh I broke, yeah. I, I cracked my skull open. I I smashed my cheekbones. And my nose was plastered over one side of my face. I my whole face was. It, the doctor described it as a packet of Smith's crisps under a under a boot. It was. Oh gosh. Yeah, I was I was really smashed. I was smashed up, and that was. And, and what about your what, what about your sister as well? I mean, I I'm, she was I'm not a, just saying. Yeah, no, she was okay. She had a seatbelt on, and she had some whiplash. Oh, God, she must have felt so bad as well. Yeah, I think it's hard because I think it's difficult because in those days, I mean, a young person hearing this now would think it was mental that you wouldn't be wearing your seatbelt, but back then that was completely normal. Yes. To not yeah. wear a seatbelt was just nobody I knew ever wore a seatbelt. Well, you, you, yeah, you just waited. It was only where the police might catch you that you would put them on. Yeah, that's right. Or the driver always did. But the passengers, yeah. no. Nobody ever did. No. It was anyway. So I think that has been really difficult. But I take full responsibility for, you know, not, not wearing the seatbelt. It's completely on me. But anyway. No, but it's still, so, so what happened? Gosh, I mean, God, that must have been at 16 as well, which is that time when. You care about how you look and yes. all that sort of thing. Yes. How well, was all of that for you? How did you how did you recover? Because your face looks great. Now. Oh, thank you. I've had a lot of surgery. Um, I had a lot of reconstructive surgery. I've had four nose jobs. I've um, I've had my my bones were knitted together with a steel frame that was there for three months, so I could I was on my teeth were wired together, so I could only have liquids. So the bones took a long time to knit, and my wire was put into the cheekbones to hold all the pieces together and it was in the late 80s so of course it was it wasn't what they could do now in fact most of my scarring on my face comes from surgery not from the actual accident but from the surgery that that they had to intervene under my eye for instance in order to get to the cheekbone to fix it whereas now they would operate from an unseen place 
back in those days they operated from a scene place, which was not helpful, right, shall when, we in say. Your when you're in your sort of late teens. Yes, when it meant it meant that my eye drooped when it didn't need to. If they'd, right. if they'd operated from up here, whether well, they would do that now. So that as an example of just, you know, things weren't great back in the 80s in terms of they, they've learnt so much more in surgical procedures now. Anyway, they, How long were you in hospital for? I was in and out for years on, uh, well, initially three months and then recuperating at home. Yes, because there was all sorts of, um, there was all sorts of fears of infection because I'd lost brain fluid. So there was an open canal in straight through to my brain. So I had to be really careful to not get a, um, an infection because otherwise then I'd be brain damaged. <laughs> so it was Oh, my God, parents as well must have been beside themselves. Oh, my God, my poor mother tells this funny story when she turned up at the hospital and she was standing over my bed and I must have had this awareness of how much worry I'd caused her. And I went, Mum, Mum, it's cool, it's all cool. And she said, it is not cool, Anne. Looking at her daughter with a matched face, going, it's all fine, Mum, don't worry, I'll be fine. Black and blue I was, yeah. Nobody could recognise me, even when they came into the hospital room. They'd go, oh, sorry, excuse me. And I'd go, no, no, it's me. Um, So that was... Right, so years of of that, what did you decide... How how do you come out of that? What what happens when you start to heal? Well, what was interesting was the choice to still act because obviously you need you know your face is important as an actor and mm-hmm. and I came up with a lot of I remember at the time thinking a lot about um, perfection and flaws and imperfections and what makes an actor and an actor's always beautiful and and do you have to be really flawless to be an actor and all these sort of questions came to me at a very early age I didn't know anything about acting. I mean, right. I only knew Charlie's Angels. I didn't know anything. But I love it that you didn't go, okay, well, now I'll go and do lighting or I'll be a director. You were like, no, no, I'm still going to be up on that stage. That the audience can deal with it. That's right. And I thought, oh, they'll be so far away, they'll never even notice, which is, is very interesting for me as an older actor now that I've started to do much more cinematic acting. And I love film. I love film acting. And, you know, it may have stopped me from getting um, roles that I auditioned for. I will, I will never know the answer to that. But I, I get roles now and nobody bats an eyelid. They just know that Annie's got a slightly asymmetrical face and that's what Annie's like. So it's okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about how your career developed from there then. So what do you do when you've come out of hospital? You decide you want to be an actor. Yes. Um, So then I came to Sydney and I did this acting course part-time, worked in all sorts of different jobs and um, eventually made my way to university. And um, so I came out of university. I had the most wonderful time and, as I said, found my tribe there. And I got my first audition and and it was for Baz, Baz Luhrmann's Strictly Ballroom. And stop it. And it was really, but but it was the play, so it was a long time before the film was made. And, um, and so I I, I started to prepare for the audition. I got got an agent, it was all just starting to bubble along. I thought, oh my god, I'm starting to get some traction. This is exciting. When my boyfriend at the time asked me, would I come to Perth as his uncle? who was his best friend, had died on a motorcycle accident and would I come and sing at the at the funeral? So I said, of course I will. So over I went to Perth and um, sang at the funeral and, and, you know, grieved with him and his beautiful family 
and we were we left the next morning after the wake and we were about seven hours seven hours out of Perth when my boyfriend fell asleep. Are you driving again? You weren't flying. No, we we're driving. And right. we were about seven hours out of Perth heading for the Nullarbor when my boyfriend fell asleep at the wheel. And I was um pleased oh, it happened again. And it happened, but it was much, much worse. Oh, Annie, my God. So I was pushed up against the the window and as the car rolled, I lost massive amounts of skin and tissue from all over my body. I was what they call degloved. Oh. So I lost That's just such an awful word just because it clearly indicates what happened and it's just yucky. But anyway, I think it's the medical term. It is it is because you can't say skinned because it wasn't skinned. I lost tissue. So I lost and that's why they say like basically it was down to the bone. So I lost my hand. Everything from my left hand was gone. I lost my ear, my scalp, my back. Skin and tissue completely gone. My my hand was just a bag of bones. I had no wrist, and my ear, my left ear, was was on the roadside. It was it it was a disaster. Um, it is unbelievable that you look so normal when you tell me that something like that happened. <laughs> when you see my hand, what you'll see is that it is in fact my hip. That had because right. the flying doctor when they picked us up. I should say here the caveat here is that I was the lucky one. Because the guy who was sitting in the front seat was killed. And he was the brother of the guy who had died on the motorcycle. So, Jules, what was really interesting about this, it was the most massive life lesson at the age of 24, was that this disastrous thing had happened to me and I was in so much, my body was in so much trauma and so was I, but I was the lucky one and I always knew that the perspective, I had this perspective of that whatever I had was suffering and whatever pain I was in, it was like a scratch compared to the grief around me and I maintained that perspective because that family... You're amazing, you know, you are amazing. (laughs) Oh, I think most people would be blown away So many people would have and said... I can't cope and been a completely different person. And yet here you are with the second one going, I was the lucky one. Yeah. Extraordinary. Oh, oh, thank you, Jules. It was it was really very powerful to be around that family who had lost two beautiful young boys in one week. And and I felt that I could only being a witness to that. That was really life changing. And it really gave me the chops to endure those surgeries. It was that. It was yeah. that that experience that gave me the guts to go. I can do this, and I and I will do it with courage because look what they have lost. So, so they gave me that strength. They gave me the grace to do that. I mean, the mother stood at my bed and 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 showed sympathy for me, and she'd lost two sons. I mean, it's 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 mind boggling, really, when you think about it. It's mind boggling to me as the Are mother. Still of, in contact with that family. She's dead now. And and actually, she, so she was the grandmother of my boyfriend. And what yeah. happened after that accident, because, of course, his guilt was dreadful because his uncle um, had died, um, he he went down a very, very bad, destructive road and I lost lost touch with him, yeah. although he, su- yeah. he survived. He's okay, but he he went and had to make... Never really recovered. He never really recovered and he had a and, really... And, but which, which brings us to resilience, which is I know what your book is about <laughs> and what you're about, but... Isn't it interesting, because I was talking to someone the other day about optimism and resilience really being a personal decision. It's a mindset, I guess, that you've got to have that mindset that goes, I'm lucky, I'm going to 
come through this and I'm going to be fine, or otherwise you will disappear into. Yes. I mean, I think to, you know. Uh, a black hole that is very, very hard. Yes, I think there's the, the choice to approach it approach you know massive tragedies like that as either the victim or as somebody who who is is able and can can sort of manage their thinking so that they can get through it but I think for me it's much sometimes this is going to sound like a bit of a bit of a um, um, contradiction in terms but I, I find it sometimes more difficult to negotiate the everyday life than it is to negotiate those really big catastrophes Right, because when yes. you've got a big catastrophe, you go, right, what's my vibe? How am I going to handle this? What's my general attitude towards getting through this? And you get a lot of attention. You get a lot of, you know, all eyes are on you, helping you through. But it's right. navigating the everyday that I find you have to watch your thinking and yeah. and and watch what your brain is trying to do, what sometimes your brain... You know, your thinking tries to pull you down and tell you you can't do it. It's hopeless. Compare. Other people are doing so much better than me. <clears throat> you know, this general negative thinking takes great energy and awareness, I find, yeah, to, right. to get yourself through. Um, and perhaps that's the life. Look, I have to say, too, not everybody would probably be privy to so much of this type of thinking because... Most people have a job they go to every day and they have much more a predictable path. But I don't have any predictable path in my life. Right. So yeah. I have to watch my thinking all the time because I'm always up and down and going for things and getting rejected and going again. And, and I do very many different jobs, as you know. So I have to really manage my energy and, and my general approach and keep my self-esteem and keep my, my mind healthy so that I can manage all the different parts of life. Wow. What an interesting thing to say. Okay. So, which, which I, and I totally agree with you. I do think that um, something kicks in, like I'm pretty good in an emergency as well. Something just kind of kicks in and you go, we've got to get through this. We've got to be calm. Let's do what needs to be done. Whereas outside of those kind of situations, it is much harder to keep on track. So talk to me about what happens after the second accident. What what did you do as you recovered from that and, and got back into working? Well, the first thing I did was decide that I was going to put on a play and I put on this play called East by Stephen Burkhoff, a very physical play. And I wanted to do that to to get back up on stage. And um, I covered up all my injuries. I wore gloves over my hands. I... Um, and I, I raised some money. I got some actors together. We rehearsed the play. It was a massive success. Sold out. Had a wonderful Brilliant. time. And that gave me confidence to, uh, you know, keep pursuing acting as a path and to take, to take it into my own hands and to really just pursue, just keep going, really just keep pursuing it, which, which I did. I did. I just, um, got another agent because my agent had dropped me by then. Um, and I, I actually, I wanted this one particular agent who was apparently very good for women. And so right. I, this, this, I, ha, I haven't told this story in my book, but 
Um, this to me is a, is a real story of resilience <laughs> and makes me laugh a lot because I would ring this agent every two weeks. That was my job. Every two weeks I'm going to try and get her to talk to her on the phone and I would ring and I'd get the reception. She'd say, no, she's not available. She won't talk to you. And I'm, ah, damn. Try again in another two weeks. Oh, hello, it's Annie. Could I talk to Robin, please? No, you can't. Anyway, one day there was a new receptionist after about six weeks. There was a new receptionist and I said, oh, Emily, it's Annie speaking. Could I please talk to Robin? And she said, is it? Is it Annie Byron? And Annie Byron was a very well-established actor. And I said, yes, it is Annie Byron. <laughs> and so she put me through to Robin. And I said, it's not Annie Byron, but please don't hang up. <laughs> anyway, she took me on. And that was the beginning of my theatre career. Right. So, and, and since then you have been non-stop in plays and so is that what you do? And now you were just talking about film as well? Yeah, so since then, um, well, that was 30 years ago, I guess. So since then I've done right. my, my um, I had this little mental challenge that I would always do more plays than I had had operations. And in, oh, okay. and, in, like and in 2018, I clocked up my 30th operation. Right. And and my thirty fifth play, so I'm. So you've done it. I've done it. I'm up by five, as I just said to you at the beginning. I'm doing another beautiful one uh, now called Set Piece, which will be on in Sydney Festival next year. Right. Um. And I'm also. I've also just just done a, a little a, a partner film, a feature film. Um. And besides that. Uh, as as I, as we spoke about, I've started to to talk about. Um, yeah. So so what what brought that on? Why did you suddenly decide thirty years later? It's time to tell my story. It's time to talk about resilience. Although I know it became a very popular word from the pandemic last year. Yes. And people wondering, you know, we watched some people succeed and were able to float and other people who went to a very dark place. Mm. Was it around that or what was the light bulb thing that made you go, no, I'm going to write this book and start speaking about it? Yeah, so I started writing um, about six months before COVID. And um, the reason was because I had my marriage broke down. Um, So I was in a 23-year marriage um, and I also had a a disastrous, a bit of a disastrous relationship um, after that. So um, it was those, they they were really massive experiences for me and obviously coming out of a couple of decade relationship is just really discombobulating. I mean, it's heartbreaking, of course, but it's also just on a life, in a life way, in a managerial way, in a logistical way. it's not familiar. Yes, and I, I had to really reinvent myself as a person outside of a relationship and I had to do it taking care of my beautiful children at the same time. So I really, uh, it's, it was an interesting thing because I had to keep myself together but I had to really be very open-hearted at a time when my heart was broken. That's the best way I can yeah. describe it. I was so broken, Jules. I thought, and I just realised when I looked back at this 16-year-old girl that had that accident, that I'd had all these different stories and for stories as a performer as well, um, one story I write about is acute anxiety. And I thought I was running along one day because I, you know, I run and I was thinking yeah. there's all these stories from my life that I could match exactly what I did to help myself to match that particular right. story. So I had stories from stage work, stories from um, a- accident stories, stories from relationships, um, lots of uh, stories. <laughs> 
weird stories of anxiety just as a you know mid-20s person trying to figure out who I was um, and then I, I matched all this a massive consumer of uh, I'm a consumer of self-help and I right. and I matched what I what those stories were with how I'd helped myself and it was on this really exciting run that I realized I could now write a book all uh, right I love it so did you write it by yourself did you get a book I um, published it myself yes and I got a coach to help me keep me accountable basically and to show, show me the way to how to actually get through to publish a book and um, a friend of mine sister designed the cover which I'm so thrilled with um, I, yeah, I can't it, wait to see it because it's a great name yeah thank you and I it's called rock and roll um, radical rock and roll resilience which there's a couple of different reasons why I called it rock and roll but it is a very rock and roll kind of book it's kind of one wieldy and it's I love language I'm You're also a bit of a rock and roll kind of chick, so I think that's, that's <laughs> I am a dude I'm a singer and and I love language I'm an English teacher as well so I, I love um yeah sometimes teach English and drama so I I, I love language I love making language dance and and so it, it has a, a very very much a rock and roll uh, vibe, but th- the other reason why I called it uh, rock and roll is because when I was, and this is another little little resilience thing, is when I was back at that girl, the sixteen year old girl recuperating, I would yeah. one of the things I did was I would pretend to be a rock and roll star in my lounge room, and so many sixteen year old girls do, but I had a face with plaster all over it and I would stand there and pretend to be Jagger or you know Chrissy Hind or whatever I was in the pretenders I was like grooving out I was blondie and what I realized later Jules in my education was that this is one of the main foundations of neuro-linguistic programming is that when you change your state you change your external state you, you it has an effect on your internal state and I didn't realise what I was doing at the time, but I was upgrading. Right. I was I was actually upgrading my mentality by 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 um, imitating these these rock gods, and it made me feel like I was more in control of my life, and I was suddenly empowered. I felt so empowered. I'd lifted my vibration. I didn't know what I was doing. But later, You're extraordinary. as a as a 30-year-old, I was like, oh, that's why I did that. And I could make sense of all the, all the things that I'd done to make myself feel better. Um, and this is what I talk about in when I, when I do my corporate speaking, uh, the, the strategies and the ways of, of making yourself feel like you can cope better with challenges that are sent to you in life i'm 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 quite passionate about it <laughs> well you're an absolutely outstanding example of it so you know you, you are the perfect person to teach that oh thank um, you well look some of the other questions that i normally ask i'm not really going to ask you because i don't know that it was they're that relevant one of the ones i like too though is because this is about women for women have there been any women in your career that have really helped you that you'd be up for doing a shout out and telling us a little bit about how they helped you oh look well i did a um there's so many there's so many um women who've championed me and um you know robin gardner my first agent and my agent now sophie german um tanya chambers this wonderful producer I, I have to say there was there's one particular woman I was doing a um, radio interview with Richard Feidler, you know, that conversations with Richard Feidler. Yeah. I was doing it with Michael Peshard and Corey McLeod 
who runs Espresso Communications and also um, Australia's... I've interviewed uh, it, her. You introduced it, me uh, to her. Yes, her OK. podcast will be out soon. Oh, great. So in, Innovation Australia. She heard me on the radio and she she rang me uh, or mess, uh, sent me an email some days later and said, I just loved listening to you speak. Will you come and talk to my team? And um, I said to her, what do you want me to talk about? Of course, at that time I was doing corporate facilitation in communication um, in dysfunct- uh, conflict resolution, I guess you'd call it. And she said, just let come and, t- come and do some conflict-, conflict resolution, upgrade communication skills. We need to talk about how to manage different personality types. And I, I-, I loved meeting Corrie. She's a fantastic woman and a great businesswoman. And I've since... Since then, I've talked again for her team, a new team. Uh, I just did it very recently. Just some months ago, I did a keynote for her team. And her son um, is an acting student. So I've also been talking to him about doing some coaching. uh, Because, you know, I teach acting and drama as well. So um, Corey McLeod has, has really been a massive support to me. Oh, that's lovely to hear. That's lovely to hear. And she's a fabulous woman. You're right. She's brilliant. Um, Okay. Uh, So the other things I normally ask are how do you juggle work and life? Well, I'm guessing for you it's all one big crazy (laughs) melting pot. It Um, it is. It it is. Um, One thing I – I think I feel like I just keep learning new little tricks all the time. And one, this great chick, Bella Rowley, she designed my website. Rowley and Co is her company. She's this mid twenties chick who's so the the bomb. And one day she was sitting there. We were talking about my website, da da da. And she said, "You know, I've noticed about you something. I've noticed about you, Annie. You need to put a little few more perimeters around your life. There's no." Boundaries. It's just like life is just like so big and I'm like where does it stop and where do you have your downtime? And I really took note of that and I said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually have a little bit more downtime and and not always have to respond to the many things that come and go. And that was a really good little that was a really great little pointer she gave me there. I need to I did need to down tools and just create a bit more space where it's just where I can just have Annie or, you know, have take better care of my relationships and have some more relaxation yeah, so time. Yeah. Having said that, you are squashing me in just before I open for inspection and a whole house move, so I appreciate it. <laughs> but you know what, Jules, isn't this just so much fun? Yes, it is. I mean, I, I, love, I love chatting with you. Okay, um, we're down to the last couple of questions. One is, is there a quirky... I mean, you are very open, so I'm, this is going to be interesting. Is there a quirky fact that most people don't know about you that you'd be up for sharing? Um, well... Is there anything left that you haven't... <laughs> well, most people don't know that I'm a black belt in taekwondo. Oh, wow. And, I've, and that I've used it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yes. Tell us. That oh well, like a story. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah. So when I was in my early forties, uh, I got my black belt. Just I was watching my children do taekwondo. I thought, am I sitting here? I might as well get up and do it. And I did do it. So did my husband, actually, my my ex. And he's a fourth dan, so he's lethal. Um, right. He's he's the guy you want in the Lim cafe situations. He's he's really amazing. But anyway, I'm a first dan, and um, one day I was. 
I was on the, uh, and it, it was great because, as you know, I've lost, I lost a lot of control of my body. And that, as an older woman, gave me a chance to get back some control. Um, you know, and I love Taekwondo. Yeah, I love Taekwondo. Anyway, one day I'm standing there on the, at the, uh, the Ivy Bar and, and as a mature woman watching an aerial show, my friend had directed. And this young guy came, came past me and started a verbal abuse telling this old bag to get off the staircase he wanted to pass. He was really rude and he was swearing at me and he was just really disgusting, basically trying to push me off. Anyway, when you're a black belt, every, you, you probably know this, but you have to give people warnings. So you have to say, <laughs> like, oh, but my body is a lethal weapon. Be careful. <laughs> That's right. That kind of thing. And so I did say which, that. Which I would, sorry, I just have to interrupt to say, I would think for most young guys, they would just take that as a challenge. Like, really, Grandma? You want to take me on? <laughs> well, that's what he did do. That's exactly right. He thought it was hilarious. He's like, oh, yeah, really, bitch. And I said, you yeah, really. Up. I said, I'm going to hurt you if you keep pushing me. Anyway, he gave, he gave me a bit of a shove. And it was scary because it was a circular staircase. So I couldn't kick him. I would have probably given him a little bit of a tap to the head. But instead of that, what I did was I pressure pointed him. I just that. Oh, you know, you find a pressure point on the arm. And if you find it, it it really hurts. If you dig in hard enough, it really hurts. You can you can disarm someone completely by by finding their pressure point. You know, you have them here in your neck and have them... No, pre- I don't know because oh, I haven't done Taekwondo. When I meet you face to face, I'm going to show you the pressure point. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. So anyway, you pressure pointed this guy, did he drop to the ground? He, he, I hurt him very badly. He, 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 um, he got off the staircase shaking his arm, swearing at me, and my friend was beside herself with glee. Oh yes, um, it was delightful. So but it's very empowering. I love that kind of a story because uh, we all know those young guys, or you know, or women that just start attacking you or having a go at you for no reason. Absolutely, to be able to come back. Yeah. Oh. Back at them is um, yeah, I, I would like to have been there. <laughs> yes, it was fun. I only wish I'd got my black belt when I was a young woman. So that all those, what you know, nights walking through King's Cross and Darlinghurst, I would have felt much safer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember walking around the streets of St Kilda when I was seventeen with the keys in my pocket and all that kind of thing. And you know, there yes. were the dodgy guys who would jump out at you and. Yes. You know, start fondling themselves and it'd be like, oh, my God, just go away. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, Jules, um, I know we have to go, but one of the stories I tell in my, in my book is about a man I found in my wardrobe who attacked me. What? Yes. In I, your house? In my house. He was in my wardrobe. He'd robbed me. And I was in my bikini sunbaking. I found him. I opened the wardrobe door and there he was. He was about six foot four and he leapt out and he pushed me onto the bed. I had to fight him. Oh I had to. God. I had to oh fight. God, I had to fight him off with my pure strength. I had no skills. I just had to fight this guy, and I was very lucky. He was a little bit substance high, and right. that was my good fortune, because I was able to use all my strength to fight him oh. off. But but and what a life you've had between car accidents and men jumping out at you, I'm from your own wardrobe. Exactly. How rude is that? <laughs> well, it's outrageous. <laughs> anyway. Right, now, I know you've got to go because you need to do your open for inspection. Yes. And we're kind of at the end of the interview. Yes. Just quickly, if anyone wants to get hold of you, which I'm sure they will because you're amazing, <laughs> or read your book, just tell us quickly 
how they can do all of that. Um, so if you just go to anniefinster.com, www.anniefinster.com, that's my website, and you can send right. me a message there or you can give me a call or um, whatever. That, that's yeah. on my website too. You can see, you know, there's acting and there's voiceover and there's um, also co- the corporate stuff is there as well. And I, all right. there's a little bit about what right. I do in facilitation. So, yeah, just go to the website and you can contact me there. That would be wonderful. Brilliant. Well, you are such an inspirational woman and so much fun. And I very much do hope that we meet one day. Oh, we thank will. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thanks so much, Jules, for having me. I absolutely loved it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sthebos.com.au.